Lord God, please help us to see what you have said to us here. We know that these words, because they are your words, are not limited just by time and by context and by a particular person's um, interpretation. Lord God, we know that when you speak, there is always something timeless about your words. So, Lord, would you meet with us this morning? Spirit of God, would you come in the promise of the Lord Jesus Christ to lead us into all truth, to convict us of sin and of righteousness? Would you reveal Christ? Would you illuminate the scriptures to us? Would you give us minds that can understand what's written here? Lord God, would you meet with us this morning, please? We ask this because of the blood and the sacrifice and the love and the atonement of our precious Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Corinthians will uh, finish off by re well, we'll start by looking at how we finish chapter one. We're just going to recap a little bit. And uh, you'll see here that I do enjoy highlighting words just to so we can have a look at some of the the literature tools that the Apostle Paul uses as he writes because he lists things or he compares and contrasts things and all those things happen so that we can kind of understand what he's doing. Chapter 1 verse 18 is where we're going to start reading this morning and then we're going to end up in the first five verses of chapter 2. Paul writes this, Corinthians chapter 1 verse 18, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. And we opened that up. We had a look at uh, the, the wisdom and foolishness here that Paul is writing about. Verse 22, Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is, is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. And remember, this is inside the first four chapters of Corinthians. Paul is making one large argument with a whole lot of pockets in it, that it's not about church leadership. It's not about Paul. It's not about Apollos. It's not about any particular pastor or bishop or leader. That's the overarching argument Paul's in the middle of here so that no one may boast before him. Verse 29, verse 30, it is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, 
holiness and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And remember, there were no chapter or verse distinctions when Paul wrote this. So we go straight on. And so it was with me. What was with him? Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters. When I came to you, chapter 2, verse 1, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. We are only going to bite off five verses this morning because I think the Lord has a point in here for us as a church, and I trust for you who are visiting with us this morning, we trust God's timing, that you are here to hear this as well. For us all to sit and to receive what the Lord would say to us through this passage of Scripture. I'm going to read it again in just a moment, and I've highlighted some different words. But here I just want you to see, first of all, Paul's usage, talking about himself, I've colored those words in red, and talking about the people, the Corinthians, who are his recipients, those words are in blue. Because Paul is making a very strong comparison in this passage of Scripture. He's saying to them, here is my approach when I came to speak to you. Here is what I did when I came to you. And the experience that Paul is referring to here, you'll find in Acts chapter 18. If you haven't read Acts chapter 18, make a note of it or write it in the margin of your Bible because Paul here is referring back to when he first turned up in Corinth. And we find that in Acts chapter 18. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. But Paul is talking to the Corinthian church throughout the first couple of chapters here, saying, remember what happened when I turned up. Think back to the experience that you had when I first turned up. That's what he's saying to the Corinthian church. Here, I've colored these words in because Paul is drawing a distinction between his behavior and then people's expectation between his aim and maybe what other people had aimed to do. Let's read the passage again. And Paul talking about himself and what he, what he did not do or how he did behave is in pink. And what he really wanted people to get hold of is in the green. Verse 1, and so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom. That's what Paul did not do. Let's put that in the pink bucket. As I proclaim to you the testimony about God. What he wants people to get hold of is the testimony about God. What he doesn't want to do is do eloquence or human wisdom. Verse 2, for I resolved to know nothing. Remember, he's talking to the Corinthians in a city wrapped up uh, in, in Greco-Roman philosophy, um, Early Christians argued a lot against the Gnostics, those who claimed there was these hidden knowledges and, and mysteries about God and you needed certain rituals. He says here, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. 
It's not about this other knowledge stuff. It's about Jesus Christ and him crucified. Verse 3, I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. Does this sound like the Apostle Paul? Remember, Paul is the guy that gets up in front of the other disciples and gives Peter a dressing down. This is Paul who, who often gets the snot kicked out of him. This is Paul who fronts up to Roman governors and tells them how it's going to be. This is Paul who gives the Sanhedrin a dressing down so much that he actually gets struck in the face. This is the Apostle Paul. And when he turns up here in Corinth, Acts chapter 18, that he's now referring back to, he says, I came in weakness with great fear and trembling. We'll talk about that in a minute. Verse 4, my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words. It's the second time in four verses that he's mentioned wisdom here. Verse 1, now in verse 4, it was not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. Well, we need to talk about that. Verse 5, so that in order to, what is it he's hoping to achieve here? Your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. That is the Apostle Paul's point. This is what he's saying inside this larger argument about church leadership is to say it's not about eloquence and human wisdom and wise and persuasive words. Paul deliberately gets out of the way so that people can have a faith which is grounded uh, and rooted and founded and established in attachment to the power of the Spirit of God, verse 4 and verse 5. Sounds pretty straightforward, doesn't it? Well, don't worry, I'm going to take the Apostle Paul's advice in a minute and I'm going to get out of the way and we're going to pray for each other. We're going to mention a couple things out of this passage of Scripture before we do that. First thing is this. What can we learn from Paul's approach? We're going to have a look at the Apostle Paul for a minute, and we're going to talk about the Spirit. Then you guys are going to pray for someone near you, and someone near you is going to pray for you. I warned you twice now that's going to happen. So if you need to run out of the building, do it in the next minute or two. Oh, come on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay, all right. First of all, when the Apostle Paul turns up to Corinth, he does turn up, verse 3, in weakness with fear and trembling. And I just want to make a really simple point. He doesn't let that stop him. Paul does not let his own perceived inadequacy actually stop him from turning up and plugging in and, and, and working alongside people for the sake of the kingdom. That's the first thing. The second thing is this. When we look through Acts chapter 18 and we have a look at what the apostle Paul did, he turns up and he finds some people who are also tent makers, people who made tents out of animal skin, primarily. They were tanners. And Paul works with them because he's of the same trade as them. So when Paul turns up, he's not wearing flashy, swishy robes. He's not turning up with eloquence and human wisdom. He's turning up and getting covered in tannin. Who here knows what tannin does to human skin? I discovered once because I bought a brand new pair of boots and then I put them on my feet because they were, well, I didn't buy them. They were a gift from a mate of mine. And then we got on a plane to go to Africa because he's like, oh, mission trip, let me get you something, get you a nice pair of boots. The problem is that it was the first time I wore those boots and I wore them for about 19 hours in transit. And your feet sweat. And what happened is it sucked the, the coloring and the tannin out of the leather and into the skin of my feet. 
And when I took those boots off, um, I can't really describe the smell that happened there. But I can tell you that what happened is then the skin on my feet dried up and and it went all hard and crackly. And I, I might not give you too many more details, but it was an unpleasant experience. And I had brown feet. That's what tannin does. And it doesn't smell good. It's not a pleasant experience. And when the Apostle Paul turns up in weakness with great fear and trembling, he's literally up to his elbows getting his hands filthy. He's working with something which is deeply unpleasant. And in that context, the Apostle Paul says that he turns up with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. Not with eloquence and human wisdom, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. Something else that we'll see. Again, go home and read Acts chapter 18. We won't look at the entirety of it now. But there is not a single miracle mentioned. Previous to that, in the book of Acts, we see the Apostle Paul heal a cripple. We see dreams and visions happening. We see the miraculous escape from prison. We see people being convicted of of the holiness and the righteousness of God and giving their life to the Lord. We get to Acts chapter 18, and Paul here says that he turns up with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, and there is nothing recorded. Nothing at all recorded. And I want to make this point really simply. When the Holy Spirit moves in power, it is not always a spectacle. The inner conviction of sin is not always a spectacle. Being healed because something has gone wrong in our heart or in our life and and having the miraculous power of the Spirit of God at work in us to forgive someone who has sinned against us is not always a spectacle. It's not always something that gets publicized and written down. This is Paul's approach. He knows that he needs to get out of the way. He didn't pretend to have it all together. He did not allow his his very real and visible inadequacy to be something that he would hide behind. Sometimes we can feel the need to do that, to go, you know what, I'm, I don't have eloquence or human wisdom. You know, my hands shake when I speak. I, I, I get this knot in the pit of my stomach. I'm, I'm not going to get out there and do something. We can actually have a false humility and say that it's something that's going to stop us from sharing our faith rather than going, you know what? I'm going to get my hands dirty up to their elbows and trust that the Spirit of God is going to move in power and get hold of someone's life. Paul wants the Corinthian church to have a faith that is not wrapped up in Paul. He wants them to have a faith that is not attached to himself or to any other leader. And this is now what he's reminding the Corinthian church of, is to say, remember you believed in the good news about Jesus because something of the dynamic power of the Spirit of God happened. And so we have a very practical question to ask at this point, which you have probably asked, I have asked, you've probably had people ask you, I think it happens at least once a month in our small group where someone goes, why don't we see all that Book of Acts Holy Spirit stuff happening? What a fascinating question. Turn with me to the book of Exodus. 
You're going to need your Bible. I haven't put these words up on the screen. If you start at the start of the Bible, you'll find Exodus really quick. Genesis, Exodus. I want to walk you through just a couple of scriptures this morning before we take a moment to pray for one another. Because we need to get it into our head. What is it that we are expecting of the Spirit of God to be at work in our life? Paul here says that it is better for the Corinthians' faith to be based on the power of the Spirit than on wise or eloquent words. And so it's reasonable for us to go, is my faith based on the words of a pastor or preacher or teacher, or is my faith based on the power of the Spirit of God? And if Paul says it's good enough for the Corinthian church, it is good enough for us. If that was Paul's expectation of the Corinthian church, then maybe we need to evaluate our own experience and our own understanding and the basis for our faith. Because our faith cannot be attached to any preacher or teacher or minister. We have to be anchored to the Lord himself. Acts chapter 30, uh, sorry, Exodus chapter 31. And I'm going to read the first 11 verses here. Exodus 31 verse 1 says this. Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have chosen Bezalel, son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with what? With the Spirit of God. What does it look like for the Spirit of God to come in power? I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with wisdom, with understanding, with knowledge, and with all kinds of skills to do what? Verse 4, to make artistic designs for work in gold, silver, and bronze, to cut and set stones, to work in wood, and to engage in all kinds of crafts. Moreover, I have appointed Aholiab, son of Ahisamach, from the tribe of Dan, to help him. Also, I have given ability to all the skilled workers to make everything I have commanded you the tent of meeting, the ark of the covenant law with the atonement cover on it and all the other furnishings of the tent. And then he goes on. What does it look like for someone to have the Holy Spirit turn up in power? One of the things that we see in Scripture is that the way they do their job radically changes. God can, by the Spirit, sovereignly, miraculously move in power on someone and change their level of skill. That is a reasonable expectation. Turn over with me to the book of First Samuel. And we're going to be in chapter 19. First Samuel chapter 19. I would tell you the page number, but I have a different Bible to you, so it wouldn't help. First Samuel chapter 19. Which says this. 1 Samuel chapter 19, verse 19. 1 Samuel chapter 19, verse 19. Word came to Saul, David is in Naoth at Ramah. So he, that's King Saul, sent men to capture him, that is David. But when they saw a group of prophets prophesying with Samuel standing there as their leader, the Spirit of God came on Saul's men and they also prophesied. Saul was told about it, and he sent more men, and they prophesied too. What a great problem to have. Saul sent men a third time, and they also prophesied. I'm noticing a pattern emerging. 
Verse 22, finally, he himself left for Ramah and went to the great cistern at Seku, and he asked, where are Samuel and David? Over in Naoth at Ramah, they said. So Saul went to Naoth at Ramah, but the Spirit of God came even on him, and he walked along prophesying until he came to Naoth. He stripped off his garments, and he too prophesied in Samuel's presence. He lay naked all that day and all that night. This is why people say, is Saul also among the prophets? Who was in charge when the Holy Spirit turned up with Saul? Saul didn't get to stay in control in this experience. And this is something that we need to be mindful of. We're going to have a look at a few more in a moment. Is when the Spirit of God turns up, the Spirit of God calls the shots. What we see here is the Apostle Paul saying, I needed to get out of the Spirit's way because your faith needs to be attached to him, not to someone as an intermediary. And so when Saul has this particular experience of the Holy Spirit, we see the Holy Spirit is also the one calling the shots. We're going to see this again and again and again through Scripture, that to encounter the Spirit of God is to radically encounter our own powerlessness. When the Spirit of God turns up, we are confronted with how powerless we are. You're in 1 Samuel, turn over to 2 Samuel. And we're going to be in chapter 6. Second Samuel chapter 6, starting at verse 1. David again brought together all the young men of Israel, 30,000. He and all his men went to Baala in Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim on the ark. They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, son of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it, and Ahio was walking in front of it. David and all Israel, 30,000 of them, were celebrating with all their might before the Lord, with castanets, harps, lyres, timbrels, sistrums, and cymbals. Amen, says Darren. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of God. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah and to this day the place is called Perez Uzzah. Fascinating passage of scripture. And we see this again and again through the Old Testament and we see this turn up in the book of Acts. We see this with Ananias and Sapphira. We see this with a guy called Elimas or Bar-Jesus, where the apostle Paul confronts him for misleading people, that when someone reaches out to touch something of God which does not belong to them, God addresses that behavior. We see it here. We see it with the sons of Aaron. Uh, we see it with uh, David and Bathsheba. We see it throughout the scriptures that there is something about the presence of God which is not to be messed with. It is something we're supposed to take very seriously. doesn't mean that we need to be severe, but it means that we don't treat it lightly. We do not treat the presence of God as though it was some ordinary thing. And Paul here is saying, 
My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. If we are going to be so brave as individuals and as a church family to say, Lord, we want our faith to be grounded on the power that you have shown us of yourself, whether that's conviction of sin, whether that's sovereignly interrupting and and changing people's skill level in their job, whether that's some of the other things we're about to read about, if we are going to ask God to meet with us, God is not to be messed with lightly. We cannot treat the Holy Spirit of God in, in the way that we treat anything else. It is a scary thing. Amos writes that it is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Turn with me over to Ezekiel. Ezekiel is one of the major prophets, which means that he wrote more than the minor prophets. So you'll find him, if you get to Psalms, keep going a little bit, and you'll find Jeremiah and Isaiah, keep going, and you'll find Ezekiel. And we're going to have a look in Ezekiel chapter 4. Ezekiel chapter 4, we're going to read the first six verses. It says this, Now, son of man, this is the Lord speaking to Ezekiel, chapter 4, verse 1. Now, son of man, take a block of clay, put it in front of you, and draw the city of Jerusalem on it, then lay siege to it. Erect siege works against it. That's like battlements. Build a ramp up to it. Set up camps against it and put battering rams around it. Then take an iron pan, place it as an iron wall between you and the city and turn your face toward it. It will be under siege and you shall besiege it. This will be a sign to the people of Israel. Then lie on your left side and put the sin of the people of Israel upon yourself. You are to bear their sin for the number of days you lie on your side. I have assigned you the same number of days as the years of their sin. So for 390 days you will bear the sin of the people of Israel. Lay on your side for 390 days, the Lord says to Ezekiel. Verse 6, after you have finished this, lie down again, this time on your right side, and bear the sin of the people of Judah. I have assigned you 40 days, a day for each year. Turn your face toward the siege of Jerusalem and with bared arm prophesy against her. I will tie you up with ropes so that you cannot turn from one side to the other until you've finished the days of your siege. Close your Bible on your finger because it's fascinating and you'll read on. I mean, each of these passages is extraordinary. Ezekiel has the spirit of God upon him for him to speak God's words, for him to be a messenger, for him to say, here is what God has already decided to do, and here's the message he's given, and I need to faithfully communicate that. Now, we believe that when Christ ascended into heaven and the Holy Spirit was poured out, that that same spirit, which was one Ezekiel, is on all who belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. The Spirit of God is the seal of our salvation. He's the down payment. He's the first fruits. He's the one who convicts of sin and righteousness. And if this same spirit is on us, then we need to learn some lessons here. Again, if we are going to be the kind of people that Paul is is challenging the Corinthian church to remember that they are, obedience is not always comfortable. If the spirit of God is on you, the same spirit which was on Ezekiel, which came upon Saul, which came upon the the workers of metal and of timber that we've already read about, then when the Holy Spirit 
pushes us to do something, calls us to be obedient to following the Lord Jesus Christ, there is not a guarantee of our personal comfort. To pursue Christ in obedience is actually to put our own comfort and our own sense of security to the side. I love what Alicia already prayed this morning and read about, that it's not about simply acquiring more material wealth. That's not what life is about anymore. We have a different set of values. We have a different mandate upon us. We are called to something far more extraordinary, and it is obedience to the Lord. You can have a look at one more passage of Scripture then before we pray. Turn with me to the book of Acts in the New Testament, Acts chapter 16. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Acts chapter 16, and we're going to read from verse 6 down to verse 10. Acts 16 verse 6 says this, Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas, otherwise known as the city of Troy. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. The Holy Spirit prevented Paul from going where he had planned to go. Imagine you're traveling with the Apostle Paul, and Paul says, we're going to Bithynia, and God says, no, you're not. You know, we're going to go to Asia. No, you're not going to Asia. Oh, Mysia. No, you're not going into Mysia. It would look like that person had no clue what they were doing or that they were making plans and that, and that then they were changing their mind. What's actually going on is the Holy Spirit is directing his steps. And again, being in submission to the Spirit of God means that the Spirit of God calls the shots that the Lord decides where you're going to go, where you're going to spend your time, where you're going to invest your life, where you're going to put your resources, where you're going to rest your head at night. That is what it looks like. And Paul here says to the Corinthian church, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. How keen are we to be anchored in our faith to the Spirit of God? Because it might mean we need to give some things up. Following God is always a challenge for our own sinful desire for control. Control is the human condition. Control is the sin of Lucifer in the very beginning. Control is then what is brought in to tempt humanity. You don't have to be in submission to God. You can be like God. You can be God to yourself. And the voice of media, the voice of culture, that inner selfishness that we have innate in us from, from birth is a desire for us to have control. But if we are going to be grounded in the spirit of God, if we are going to be the people of Christ, if we are going to faithfully represent God into this world, we have to address our control issues. Again, encountering the Holy Spirit is to encounter our own true powerlessness. When we come to God, when we are actually in the presence of God, either because there is a, an overwhelming experience 
of intimacy with the Lord that happens in this life or when we are present on the day of judgment, how powerful do we think we are? When we are actually on that day in the presence of God, how powerful are our words or our actions? We're powerless. Our greatest ambitions, our greatest achievements are powerless. Our reputation is powerless. Our qualifications, our certificates, our awards, our prizes. The Holy Spirit casts a sharp, blinding truthfulness on human frailty and fragility and meaninglessness and powerlessness that a person cannot do any other thing than actually to turn their face toward God and in complete humility surrender and give glory to God and the magnificence of Jesus his son. This is what it is for us to pray that the Holy Spirit would move in power. If I want my faith and if I want my relationship with the Lord to be based on, on him moving in power in my life and amongst us as a church, it is to surrender. And so we cannot pray lightly. To seek God is to go as someone who is actually prepared to lose their very life. This is what it is to seek an encounter with God, that we hold nothing back. I can't say, all right, Lord, I'm going to follow you, but here's all the stuff I'm staying in control of. Lord, I'm going to follow you, but you know what? I'm not going to do any of that other sort of stuff because that's going to make me look bad. It's going to embarrass me. If we go to God with that approach, it means we're actually still making it all about us rather than being all about him. We need to understand that the faith of the Corinthians, the faith that Paul wants them to have, the very same faith that we're called to is a faith where we give up control. It is not a faith where you or I get to tell God what parts we're staying in charge of. Fundamentally, this is Paul's aim in this passage of Scripture to draw the contrast between him as an instructor and the faith of the Corinthian church either anchoring back to Paul or Paul getting out of the way, wanting so much for them to be attached wholeheartedly to the Holy Spirit. And I need to say this, may God forbid that I or any other minister should do differently. If you are only a Christian because of the wisdom or the eloquence of my words or the words of someone else, that is insufficient. Your faith is supposed to be grounded in the power of the Spirit of God, the Spirit who reveals Christ. See, the Corinthian story is actually not about Paul. It's about the Spirit of God. And the Kerrang Baptist story is not supposed to be about a particular preacher or pastor or personality. It's supposed to be about the Spirit of God. And how our story in this place, your story plays out, is continually about who we are in submission to. Are we in submission to the Spirit of God? Are we giving up control? Or is it a story based around human wisdom and slick words? Scary stuff, hey? Paul knows that he needs to get out of the way. Paul does not want the faith of the Corinthian church to be attached to him. He deliberately does not turn up dressing in a fancy way, splashing a whole lot of cash about, 
trying to be, to be influential, trying to, to use all of his very best words. He goes on and he talks about message of wisdom and all that sort of stuff. But fundamentally, Paul knows that if, if your life is going to be transformed, it's between you and God. And he is a signpost to point you to God. So right now, I'm going to take a leaf out of Paul's book and I'm going to get out of the way. And you need to talk to God. So what I'm going to ask you to do is to turn to the person next to you and to very simply ask them what's going on in their life, however big, however small, however difficult, however honest or open people are prepared to be. We had a great time of prayer last week. I know you guys know how to do this. And then we're going to ask very simply that the Holy Spirit would move in power in that situation. Really simple. So ask the person next to you what's going on, and then we're going to invite the Lord to move in power in that situation so that our faith cannot just be based on words but can be based on encountering God at work in our life, however big, however small. I'm going to ask Alicia to come and just play the guitar quietly while that's going on. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to move into this next period. Lord God, we don't want to have a faith simply based on on flowery words, as much as words can be really nice. Lord God, you've heard this question that every one of us in this room has asked again and again and again. Lord God, where, where do we see your power at work in our life? And Lord God, as we invite you in, I ask that you would prick our conscience about how much control we still want to keep. Because inviting you in means that we don't get to stay in charge of everything. But Lord God, I pray, I pray for myself and my household, and I pray for this house and this church family that we would have a faith not based on human wisdom, but that we would have a faith like the Corinthian faith like what Paul wanted for them, a faith based on an encounter with your spirit. Lord God, would you reveal Christ in these situations that we're about to pray about right now? Thank you, Lord God.